And we're recording. <laughs> All right, thank you for reminding me of that. All right. So one of the first things that I'd like to cover today is the idea of relief, rehabilitation, and development. The first thing that we need to discuss is what is relief? Relief can be defined as the urgent and temporary provision of emergency aid to reduce immediate suffering from a natural or man-made crisis. And so there's no coincidence here the way that this uh, chart is drawn out. You'll notice how relief is kind of like a cliff. And then when you hit rock bottom, that's kind of when relief stops and rehabilitation begins. And we'll get into rehabilitation here in a minute. But relief... When I want you guys thinking of relief, giving someone something, some kind of aid, it's to stop an immediate crisis. It's to, as, the, as it says, to, to stop the bleeding. Um, relief is not meant to be something that's long-term. Relief is something to be temporary, immediate, and really, relief is to help someone do something that they can't do on their own. That's one of the big criteria of relief. And so, what do you guys think? Can you guys give me some examples of, of situations where a relief might be, where, where it might be good to offer relief? Like after a hurricane, the tsunami. Yes. One of the, you know, we offered, of course, relief after Haiti. My brother was actually in Haiti during the earthquake. Uh, was, they didn't intend it to be a relief mission, but it quickly turned from a mission trip to a relief mission when he was in Haiti. Um, we offer, after the tsunami in Indonesia, we offer relief, right? Um, and there's lots of situations, also not just overseas, but immediately when people need relief. Obviously, uh, you know, if somebody was by the side of the road, hurting, bleeding, obviously that's a perfect time for relief. It's not a perfect, it's not the time to discuss with that person all the final points of how they can get back on their feet and, and doing rehab. It's probably something more immediate, more urgent. And so that's kind of what I want you guys thinking when we think of relief. Rehab is when the bleeding stops, when the person hits rock bottom, and they seek to restore people to their communities, to the positive elements of their pre-crisis conditions. So step one in the process when um, hurting people without helping them is to giving them immediate relief when the situation calls for it. Because a lot of times we can go straight to step two, rehab. But sometimes we need to stop the bleeding. And then after that bleeding stops, we then have to determine, well, how can we get them to their pre-crisis condition? How can we get them back to the point when they were living fruitfully, if that was even a scenario? And so, as you can see, rehab, according to the chart, is when you're going on your way back up. You're on your way to restoring the individual, on the way to uh, the person reconciling themselves to God, to themselves, to others, and to the rest of creation. And then finally, development. Development is a process of ongoing change that moves all people involved, both the helpers and the help. And that's a key phrase right there. Both the helpers and the helped closer to being in right relationship with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. And one of the reasons why we emphasize the phrase there, uh, help, it's, it's, it has to do with helping both the helpers and the helped is because the idea behind what Steve and Brian are proposing here is that when you help the materially poor, it is something that you do alongside them. 
It is not something that you do for them. It is not something that you do to them, but alongside them. And we're going to see later on how they need to be full participants of their uh, rehabilitation, their relief, their rehabilitation, and their development, or else the whole process just doesn't work. One of the biggest mistakes that North American churches make, by far, is in applying relief in situations in which rehabilitation or development is the appropriate intervention. Can you guys think of any examples of when you've seen that, basically someone with good intentions come help, but offer relief when really rehabilitation or development is what is needed in the situation? The homeless, okay. And give them food so that they can help their current situation and then be there for a couple of meals. Mm-hmm. So what we one situation where it is appropriate to provide some sort of relief, um, but they're in a situation where they need both relief and rehabilitation. They're in that stage. Um, and they, we need to be providing them bo- both of that. And then eventually with the goal of getting them to the developmental stage, but relief and rehab for them. Yes. Um, any other example of... Relief is easy. I think about Haiti. I mean... One of the tragedies, the numbers were 10 years ago, mm-hmm. there were far fewer people in the capital. So when the earthquake happened, one of the problems was 10 20% of the whole population is now in that city where the earthquake happened. Whereas if they had been living where they lived 10 years before, it wouldn't have been as bad. Mm-hmm. But they're coming there because there's free food. So you make something free, people will, will come to it. I, the other one I think about is Habitat for Humanity is much harder than having you know, manna on 8 o'clock on Saturday. You have to plan, you have to be consistent. It takes a lot longer. Relief makes us feel good and it's over quickly. These yeah. other things are much, much harder. Alright, I think we just discussed that one. Alright. There's a couple principles I think that we have to understand when we're talking about effective relief. Because uh, I think effective relief is something that the church ought to really consider. Because they're, I think the hearts of the churches are, are, are pretty good in that they want to help. They want to provide relief because they know that there's a need. They know they're called to provide relief. But yet, the implementation isn't always the best. A couple things. Relief needs to be immediate. If a person is in the midst of a crisis and cannot help himself, a timely response is crucial. And relief is temporary, provided only during the time that people are unable to help themselves. Unable to help themselves is a big key, and we're going to talk about paternalism later on. Um, but as I said before, it needs to be immediate and temporary. I, I, the, the example that immediately comes to my mind when, we're, when, we're, when, we're, when we need to provide relief to someone is, let's say, someone comes to the church, um, a, a woman who has been abused and we, we, we've encountered this as deacons um, in this past year a woman comes to the church she's been abused how, how do you is that the time to, to talk about rehab and development no it's a time for relief because we have to immediately get her out of her situation we cannot send her back home imagine how much harm that would be if we sent her back home and then it has to be though temporary because what if 
we said, well, you can stay at this place and we'll flip the bill for it, or you can stay with this family for good. Well, then will she ever really recover to her pre-crisis condition? No. She'll become dependent upon the help that she's receiving. And so it needs to be, effective relief needs to be temporary and immediate. And let's talk about five principles for relief and rehabilitation. Number one, ensure participation of the affected population in the assessment, design, implementation, monitoring, and evaluation of the assistance program. All right, the key words here are ensure participation of the affected population. Um, as I mentioned earlier, one of the ways that we commonly help people but hurt them at the same time is that we want to go do things for people or to people instead of with people. And so what that does, and we'll get into the discussion even in greater detail later on, is that it just aims to hurt them. So relief and rehabilitation must incur the, the uh, participation of those people you're trying to reach. It just doesn't work if you do it any other way. And one of the things I'm going to share with you as we go along is my stories and my failures running the homeless ministry for two years in East Orlando. Um, I wish I would have known these principles and have studied this before I did the homeless ministry. Because looking back now, I see so many things. I did, did pretty much everything wrong. Um, the principle number two for relief and re- rehabilitation. Conduct an initial assessment to provide an understanding of the disaster situation and to determine the nature and the response. Uh, we are going to get into later on some um, ideas of how you can assess the situation that you need to attend to. Um, but one of the things that I did was when I started my homeless ministry, one of the first things I did was I just visited a bunch of homeless people and I surveyed them. And in my survey, I was like, okay, well, what, what is it that you need from us? Um, and I told them I was going to start another outreach program to help the homeless population and I needed their input as to what they need. And so what I did was I took an inventory. I took a list of items that we could provide for them, including, you know, most of them are obvious, like food, clothes, things like that. But a lot of them are, weren't so obvious um, to me because I did not live in that situation. Um, I remember they, a couple of them asked me for five-gallon buckets. And I was like, why in the world would you need five-gallon buckets for? And, well, they go to the bathroom. And, you know, they don't have the same facilities that we do. And so that's what they use that for. I would have never have thought of that. And so I did an inventory of needs. Now, it was good that I was assessing the situation so I can properly help. We're going to talk about later on, though, whether the way I assessed was the proper thing to do or not. Number three, respond when needs of an affected population are unmet by local people or organizations due to their inability or unwillingness to help. One of the... the I think one of the most important things we could do when reaching out to people who need help is assess whether or not we are actually the proper ones to help or not. Because sometimes it's just none of our business and we need to butt out. Because there's people who are in positions to do it better than us and we need to recognize that. Um, and I think this is, is scripturally based as well. We see here in First Timothy 5, 3, and 4, Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, for, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents 
for this is pleasing to God. And so I think one of the things that we need to ask ourselves anytime somebody comes to us for help is, is we need to find out if their family situation can provide that help. And if they're, and if they're living a distance that's far away from, from us, if their locals would do a better job of helping these people who, who are coming to us for help. In the case of Haiti and Indonesia, we were absolutely right to provide help because the local population uh, was either unwilling or incapable of providing the relief that those people needed. But in many situations, the communities that are in place, whether it be a family structure or the local town people, are better able and better equipped to understand the plight of the people of the materially poor than we are from a distance away. Um, I've heard of churches, well-meaning churches um, all over the country, especially one in Detroit that I'm thinking of, that but they, they, they were a kind of upper-class uh, white Anglo church in Detroit. And they lived in a very, they lived in the suburbs of Detroit. They were kind of a well-to-do people. And they, their heart was in the right place, and they wanted to help the people in the inner city. But the people in the inner city were like an hour away. And their outreach to them wasn't very effective because they didn't try to connect with any of the locals. They didn't try to connect, see what organizations and, and, and parachurch uh, groups and, and people who were close to, close to the situation, they didn't see what they were doing first. And they tried this outreach to them and it was awkward and, and, and no one kind of came out with the feeling that they did much to really help that situation. And that's because they didn't take that principle into consideration. Number four, target assistance based on vulnerability and need and provide it equitably, equitably and impartially. Um, I think that's one of the biggest, I think, um, arguments against um, big government, say, welfare programs. Because what they do is that they take this pot of gold and they spread it around to, to anyone who fills out a form and you know, claims that they need it. However, um, I can attest that I know personally people who are taking advantage of the system and are more than capable to getting jobs and, and things like that and just taking this money because it's easy money. And one of the thing, important key factors in helping the poor is that we have to assess who needs it and who doesn't. And it's important to reject the people who don't need it. Because not only are you hurting those people by making them dependent, but you're also taking valuable resources away from the people who do need it. And so it's important that we assess who are the vulnerable, who are the people who actually need it, and who don't. Uh, Number five, um, and this is the last principle of relief and, and rehabilitation. Aid workers must possess appropriate qualifications, attitudes, experience to plan, effectively implement appropriate assistance programs. Basically, you don't want just anybody out there helping the poor if they don't know how. Um, This, of course, varies depending on how much you actually interact. For example, MANA, when, when you help out a MANA for Saturday mornings, you don't have to go through this long training process. There's not a whole lot of interaction between the people who are helping on Saturday mornings and the people who are actually coming. They're not doing a whole lot of counseling or anything like that. So a quick a few minutes with the people who are maybe helping out with MANA would be suffice to say, this is how we do things, these are our procedures, this is, if someone wants prayer, we pray with them. But let's say, for example, it was 
we were helping out more with the rehabilitation development process instead of just the relief. Is it possible that somebody who was in a position to offer counseling but wasn't well trained, didn't understand um, the principles that we're talking about today, is it possible that that person can do or cause a lot more harm to the people he's helping? And so that's one of the reasons why this principle is so important. That we want to make sure that everyone who's helping is understanding of what the game plan is and properly understands how to help. Because a lot of people are willing, but sometimes it's better just to be like, you know, this is not for you right now. And the fact is, that our, isn't it true scripturally that we're gifted very differently from God? That we're given different spiritual gifts. Not that any of us have the right to forsake our responsibility in helping the materially poor, but how we help might vary depending on what our gifting is. How do you think, and I want you guys to kind of connect the dots of all the things that we discussed here so far today. How do you think that bad relief can undermine worship? How does, what is, because the first time I heard this question, I thought to myself, well, I'm not sure I really understand the connection between worshiping God and bad relief. What's the connection there? How do you think bad relief could undermine our goal to make worshipers? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, if working, if producing fruit, you know, of your labor is one of the ways in we're, we're worshiping God, but by the way we're helping people is we're giving them the things and not and, and simply doing that, providing relief with no rehab and development, well then are we really helping people become worshipers of God? Uh, the rest of creation. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, if, if you make someone dependent upon you, expecting a relationship with God because they're dependent upon you and now you're their God and not the true God, it's breaking their relationship with themselves because they have no dignity. Um, they have no sense of worth if they're just being given and uh, aren't able to do anything. And in fact, I think one of the key things that we did last week in our discussion was talk about how the homeless see themselves. Not the homeless, but the materially poor see themselves. And remember we talked about how they saw themselves in, this, in, in the light of what shame that they had. That they, they felt helpless, powerless, and shame all the time. 
And so that it's a broken relationship with self. Because God says, you are a king. I made you as the leader of this world to, to have dominion over the earth. I made you in my image. You're not to be some helpless, poor, you know, thing, lowly creature. That's not who you are. It's not the relationship you are to have with yourself. Real quick. God, who is a worker, ordained works so that humans could worship Him through their work. Relief efforts applied inappropriately often cause the beneficiaries to abstain from work, thereby limiting their relationship with God through distorted worship or through no worship at all. Alright. One of the things that we want to do today is make sure that we um, avoid paternalism. And I think that, especially for me, this is very convicting for myself. Because, of course, paternalism being like, you know, acting like a parent, doing stuff for people like you're their mom and dad. Um, And then we want to avoid doing things for people that they can do for themselves. Um, it's hard because I'm just so, my, my, my mindset is so trained to like when I see someone hurting just to do for them and, and, and I love to serve. But sometimes that is the wrong thing to do, especially if they can do for themselves. And there are several ways in which we um, engage in paternalism with those who are materially poor. Um, resource paternalism, of course, we give them stuff. We give them resources, we give them money, we give them clothes. Um, when they can possibly do for themselves. Spiritual paternalism. Um, I think we have to be careful with this one, but spiritual paternalism is essentially when you're telling them what to believe, how to repent of their sin, when there's no understanding for themselves of the gospel because everything is just told to them instead of coming to an understanding together of what the Bible has to say. And you become essentially their God. Knowledge paternalism. That they're very dependent upon you to do anything. They're always looking for you to lead them in the next step. And there's no sense of, I know what to do here. I can grab the, the, you know, the, the bull by the horns and, and, and go with it. Because they're just so dependent upon you to tell them what to do. Labor paternalism. Um, doing things, serving people and doing actually actions for them that they can do for themselves. Brian and Steve in the book share this interesting story of how one time Brian heard about this uh, widow who her house was in horrible condition. And one of the... one of the ways that he decided to help her was to paint her the outside of her house because it was just deplorable. And so he went over there with his bucket of paint. He was painting the house. And while he was painting the house, out comes of this widow's house six of her young, healthy sons who were sitting on the porch watching Brian paint this widow's house. And he said that during... While he was painting the house, he just had this sick feeling in his stomach that this woman had six healthy young sons, yet he was here painting their house and they were just all watching him. There was something incredibly wrong about that. That's labor paternalism. Um, I, and, and more on a personal note, when me, um, after Katrina, me and my wife went to go help uh, some of the victims of Katrina over in Louisiana, and 
one of, one of our job tasks was to gut houses. In fact, that was our main job task. We just went from house to house helping people uh, gut, gut their house because that's a big job. I mean, you're knocking down all the walls of the house. You're pulling down all the drywall. You're taking everything out of the house, including the furniture, the drywall, the insides. You're complete, leaving it completely gutted so that the people in the next step in the process can come and start rebuilding. But first, you've got to empty out all the garbage. Um, and we were doing this for people because it's really a big job for just one person to do on their own. So we were helping a lot of single mothers um, you know, go about doing it. But we came across this one house. The resident wasn't there, but we knew we had to gut the house. So we just kind of let ourselves in, started gutting the house and tearing down the walls. And then while we were finishing up, you know, and this is a, a big project. And so like several hours later, as we were finishing up, we were leaving, the house was gutted. The, uh, the owner of the house comes by. And so we just, you know, introduced ourselves. We we're like, oh yeah, we heard you signed up for the service. We, you know, we did your house for you. Uh, you know, kind of God bless. And we were just making conversation. And it's like, I really appreciate it. And we come to find out that he doesn't live there. He was like an investor. <laughs> and that this was just his house. And that who, like, you know, he was trying to flip and make money on and stuff like that. Which, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm an, I I invested in real estate also. But he didn't really understand that this is a service that we were providing the people who were living in the house. And people who couldn't do for themselves. And so, like... When we left that house, we just had like all of us kind of looked at each other and just like gave each other a look like we just spent the last six hours of our time helping like an investor as a person as opposed to like huh (laughs) no no I don't think he I don't think he did that maliciously I don't think he I I just don't think he really understand what our mission was there but but, (laughs) yes you're looking at labor but at the same time that event was so catastrophic financially wherever he was. There's a witness to him in your labor. It wasn't the ministry you thought you were having. Right. But you've opened a door with him that maybe you go back and follow in a different way. Right. Because you've served him in a different way. That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, but it's something that could have been caught, right, if we had the proper pre-screening method. Right. And that's the problem. We didn't have the proper pre-screening method. We were just kind of helping out whoever said they needed help instead of assessing, as we talked about just a couple minutes ago, the vulnerability. Are you living in this house? Is it, you have nowhere else to turn to. You know, if we had the proper pre-screening method, we could have caught that and stopped the legal paternalism. You're sad because you could have helped three other people. Exactly. Time, yeah. And you feel like you wasted your time right. on this guy. And that, exactly. That is very frustrating. Um, I know somebody who helps at a food bank. Mm-hmm. He says he's very frustrated because this woman rolls up in a Cadillac Escalade. <laughs> yeah. Loads up the food at the food bank because all you have to do is sign up and drives home to her huge house. Right. And there's some famous women in history, you know, who had millions of dollars and made their own clothes and never, and they were just tight, crazy tight with money. Um, and they'll take advantage of every free program under the sun. Right. Yeah. The, that comes from not assessing needs. Um, and then last, the last kind of paternalism that we often uh, do is, uh, this is another one I'm guilty of, is managerial paternalism. A lot of times we come into a situation to provide relief, rehab, or development, and we just want to run everything. And I'm guilty of this, too. When I was doing my homeless ministry, I give no one that I was helping any kind of authority, any kind of decision-making, any kind of sense of ownership in what we were doing. Instead... 
Um, I thought I was doing a good job and just by giving them tasks. And I was saying, you do this, you do that. And I thought I was getting them really involved. Whereas in Brian and Steve would say, that doesn't cut it. Because all you're doing is making them like your employee. You're giving them no ownership of themselves. And so I was guilt, very guilty of managerial paternalism, thinking that I can run everything. And that's kind of the, um, the Superman complex or the God complex that we have a lot of times when we're helping people. We think that we know better than them, but really they're the ones with the plight. They're the ones who are going through the situation. We might not know better than them in every situation. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, I had a lot of help. But um, the question I think that each church or each per, each either individual or each organization who helps the materially poor has to determine what their niche is. Because um, we, we have to ask the question: Can we really do everything? Um, and I think it's in some cases maybe a church can be holistic in their approach if they're big enough, if they're um, organized enough to maybe provide everything. But some and, but some churches can't. I think personally, I think the niche of our church is relief. Um, serving as a deacon, I see a lot of the relief aid that we give people, and I think we do a pretty good job of it. We don't do necessarily a great job of assessing, and that's something that we're working on this year and, and becoming better at assessing who is really vulnerable. Um, but I think we, do, we, we have good resources and, and, and a good sense of people who really want to stop the bleeding amongst people who are bleeding. Um, however, our church does take a holistic approach. We got like relief efforts like manna and Barnabas. We have uh, rehab uh, things like... Um, Stephen's ministry is more developmental. Uh, rehab, we would probably consider Christian help. We know we, we donate $500 to Christian help every month um, and we team up with them. We send them a lot of referrals. So that's one way we actually don't maybe do that internally, but we work alongside power church organizations who specialize in the rehab process. And then, as you just said, the Stephen Ministry uh, development. And so um, those are some ways we can partner up with power church organizations. You don't, just because relief, rehab, and development is all part of making someone our end goal, stop being materially poor, and helping them to be worshipers of God, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do everything. It just means that the people helping have to make sure that these different processes are in place, whether it's coming from themselves or working with other people who are better at it. Assessing the needs of the community. Now let's talk about that initial assessment. There's... There's probably, there's probably tons of ways to assess the needs of a community, but there's two ways in which are the vast majority of organizations or people who provide help do that. One is a needs-based approach, uh, which is the approach that I took when I was assessing my homeless population. I said, what do you need? What can I do for you? How can I help you? And I listed uh, stuff. I had a list of material things that they needed as well as services. And then, however, Brian and Steve's talk also about an asset-based community development, or what we'll refer to from now on as ABCD. The need, let's talk about real quick the, the, the needs-based one, the, the, the approach that I took. Um, there is some merit behind it. You immediately diagnose what the problems are. I mean, if people are asking you for basic things like food and shelter, you can immediately assess the materially poor. <laughs> if, if people are coming to you asking for like, things like counseling, um, you can 
immediately assess that there is some kind of emotional need there, uh, whether it be depression or something else. Uh, so, like, the needs-based uh, assessment really kind of gets to the problem really quickly and helps diagnose that. So that's one of the merits to it. Um, and whether you are asking this directly, essentially you're asking this by doing the needs-based approach, what is wrong with you? How can I fix you? You know, I did not go to a single homeless person and ask, how can I fix you? Because I can come off across very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Condescending. Paternalistic. Yeah, paternalistic, condescending. Uh, but essentially by saying, hey, what can, we, what can my ministry provide? I was essentially asking the same thing in just a nicer way. And so that's kind of the needs-based approach. It starts with what is wrong. Whereas in the asset-based approach, starts with what is right. It's, it, it takes that paradigm and flips it on its head. Uh, one, of the folk, one of the merits of an asset-based, determining an inventory of not what is needed, but an inventory of what is right. What talents and abilities does the people you're trying to reach, what do they have? It focuses on what they have instead of what they lack. Um, I was always told growing up by my dad was, son, focus on what you do have, not on what you don't. And I think that's what the asset-based process does, is it focuses on on the good instead of the negative. And some of the questions it asks, evidently, is, well, what is right with you? What is right with you as an individual? What has God gifted you in? What are your talents? Um, what gifts has God given you that you can use to improve your life and that of your neighbors? And how can the individuals and organizations in your community work together to improve your community? Do you hear that? Work together. Not work for, not work to, but work together. Instead of looking outside the low-income individual or community for resources and solutions, ABCD starts by asking the materially poor how they can be stewards of their own gifts and resources, seeking to restore individuals and communities to being what God has created them to be from the very start of the relationship. There's, kind of, there's a few steps in determining um, ABCD and, and, and determining the process. First, you determine the assets. You might ask what you do have. Then you determine the needs and the problems. And so you see, the problem with my assessment was I was starting with the needs and the problems. Where ABCD says that's step two. First, find out what they do have. And then after you determine what they have and what problems that they have as a result of that, uh, determine how the current assets can meet the current needs and problems. Determine what they do have and how that could be part of the solution as, a, as, a, as opposed to just an outsider coming in and doing it and everything. And then num- step number four, determine what outside resources, if any, are needed to be brought in to address the needs and fix the problems. And so after you assess the, what they do have and how that can be part of the solution, that will probably cut down on what you need to bring from the outside to help. And obviously you want to bring as little resources from the outside as possible. When considering bringing in outside resources, we must always ask two questions. When we get to the part where we decide, okay, they're incapable of fulfilling this need with their assets, we have to ask ourselves, when we bring in those outside resources, is it too much? Is it too soon? Because of course, that can cripple everything. If we start to make them dependent upon us, what happens? the community is crippled and we're not really helping them we're hurting them and Brian and Brian Fickard one of the authors of the book says it would be far better to let non-emergency need go unmet than to meet that need with outside resources and cripple local initiative in the process 
So let's summarize real quick the, um, this asset-based uh, assessment. One, you identify and mobilize the capabilities, skills, and resources of the individual or community. Start with what they have. Step number two, as much as possible, look for resources and solutions to come from within the community, not from the outside. Number three, seek to build and rebuild relationships among local individuals, associations, churches, basically make connections between what is already there. How can the local school help out the local materially poor? How can this local organization also help and start making connections? so that the community can be self-sustaining and that they're not always required, always requiring your outside help. And only bring outside resources when local resources are insufficient. That is one of the biggest keys. Only, only do bring in resources when they're absolutely needed. And there's a biblical basis for this. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Notice what I'm trying to emphasize here. All things. Who does, what is God trying to restore? All things. Remember that he established that all things fell in the fall of man in Genesis 3. And so, part of the redemption process is the restoration of all things, including the materially poor. And so, when we apply ABC to, to, to this, we can understand that each person was made, in each community, God has been working in well before we got there. And so, we, we can't be so arrogant to think that we're going to bring God to this community the fact is God's been at work since the very beginning when all things fell to restore this community. Romans 8.21 says that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. Last week, Pastor Mike preached on redemption. And what did he say? Redemption is freeing someone from slavery. I also think of redemption as the process of making everything right that is wrong. That is the work of the gospel. That is the work of what God is doing. He's restoring things to its pre-crisis situation. When God made the earth and everything in the earth, He made it what? Good. But now everything is broken. And that is what redemption is all about. Restoring things so that they are once again good, so they are once again whole rescuing us from the bondage of sin and slavery and delivering us. Um, Skip this one real quick. Alright. Establishing lasting change. This is the last thing that we'll cover today. We've got ten minutes left. Establishing lasting change. Um, There's the learning process that we're going to advocate today. And then there's the blueprint approach. The blueprint approach says that what you do when you are helping the materially poor, you go into a community and you basically see what has worked in another community and apply the same exact thing to that community. And that's the blueprint approach. There's a lot of problems with the blueprint approach, though. Oops. I hit escape. What do I do now? 
model of the learning process. Huh? You're modeling the learning What are, what are some, well, before we get to what's wrong with the blueprint model, what are some strengths you think of, of taking something that's worked in another community and applying it to a new community? What, are, what do you think are some good things about that? Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. You're not starting from scratch. Anything else you guys can think of? You might save you time a little bit and just jump right into it. You can jump right into it, yeah. You can warehouse stuff like cars. Absolutely. You're not reinventing the wheel, right? Um, it, so it, it could be more efficient, certainly, um, because existing procedures are already in place. Uh, however, what are some of the weaknesses of this model? What do you think is wrong with the blueprint model when applying what works in another community to every community? All right. That's, that's a good point. Yeah, and a blueprint model doesn't really take that into consideration, does it? Like, it, it kind of puts everyone in one category. So, one of the biggest things it, it, it does is that usually the blueprint model is you have a set of group of volunteers out, who are outsiders coming in to fix something, helping the people, instead of working with the people. The blueprint model doesn't encourage participation amongst the people you're trying to reach. And isn't that one of the goals that we're trying to do? Encourage participation. And it does not deal with the varying cultural issues. Um, it's funny, there was a, a story of uh, a group here in, in North America who wanted to build a house for um, a missionary who was in Africa. And when they built a house for the missionary in Africa, they didn't get any, of the in, they didn't get any input from the missionary himself. And as a result, and they built a house that was culturally backwards. They built a house that had the bathroom right in the middle of the house. And apparently in that culture, unbeknownst to the people who were building the house for this pastor, is that bathrooms are to be in the back of the house, not in the middle of the house. And it was a very shameful thing to have a bathroom in the middle of the house. I don't understand why exactly. It wasn't revealed in the story why that was. But... Essentially, the house went empty. The pastor couldn't live there because essentially no one in his congregation would respect him <laughs> because of the way the, the blueprint of the house. And so they put all these resources, all this time, all this labor to doing a very good thing. But because they were just following a straight blueprint model instead of asking, you know, the best way to do this, uh, it all went for naught. And the blueprint model does not deal with varying practical issues. Same story in America. Uh, I forget what year it was, but there was an, some kind of HUD initiative um, a couple of generations ago in which uh, the government wanted to build houses for um, low-income people. Um, I think it was part of the Making Houses Affordable program or something like that. And so they built houses for these poor people, but they didn't get any assessment from the community as to what they need. What they did instead was just build the houses and made them all the same. Well, they built it in these rural communities in which they put the laundry room on the inside of the house, whereas in all these people were living on dirt roads and were blue-collar workers. And they wanted the laundry rooms on the outside of the houses because 
they didn't want to come in with all their being all dirty and all filth and everything like that. And so a lot of the, so it didn't work for a lot of the community that needed these houses. Plus, one size fits all. They made all the houses with carpet, whereas in the community was would prefer like a laminate flooring or some kind of hardwood flooring because they can sweep all the dust that's coming from the outside. Remember, these were dirt roads. These were poor people. These were laborers. And the, and the carpets were, were keeping a lot more of the dirt and the, and the dust and the grime. And so that's just one of the ways that it was just a practical issue that you can't address with the blueprint model. So how is the learning process uh, approach different? An approach that seeks to facilitate an action reflection cycle in which poor people participate in all aspects of the project, proposing the best course of action, implementing the chosen strategy, evaluating how well things are working, and determining the appropriate modifications. This involves the people that you're helping a lot more than a blueprint model. It's asking the people to participate, to claim ownership of the process. Who better to understand their needs than the people who are going through the situation? Learning process approach. What do you think are some difficulties of that kind of approach? As opposed to just coming in and setting up and and doing things that have worked in the past, engaging the community and getting their input. What do you think is some major trials to overcome with that? It's a lot slower. In fact, in Baltimore, there, someone who did this approach in Baltimore, he came in and his whole goal was to rehab houses for people who couldn't afford them. But he took this approach. And you know what? He said that he didn't rehab his first house until for four years into the program. It's a lot slower. But then when he did start the process, it worked incredibly. And it was a lot faster because the people knew were on board. They knew what they were doing. They took ownership. And it was a lot faster. But the first house was in rehab for four years. Some people who perhaps were giving to his ministry were thinking that this was a failure. Because imagine being three years in and you haven't even picked up a hammer. It takes a lot more time to produce tangible results on this map. And as a result, you get less enthusiasm, especially in the beginning amongst people who are maybe supporting the ministry, who are donating, or when you're getting volunteers, to think that we're not going to pick up a hammer for four years. Some people might not be along for that train ride. Um, But here's two reasons why there's a higher success rate amongst people who do this kind of process. People are more likely to have a sense of enthusiasm for, for and ownership of the project if they have been full participants in it from the very beginning. And poor individuals and communities are highly complex and not well understood by the materially poor, non-poor. And I think that's a good point to make, that a lot of times we think we know it all, but we don't. And we need to consult with them because they can probably give us a lot of insight that we don't have ourselves. Participation is not just a means to an end, but rather a legitimate end in its own right. Um, Because by participating in your own relief and rehab, what are you doing? You're working. Essentially, you're working towards the goal of being become worshipers of God and returning to your pre-crisis situation. But you're not doing that if you're not participating. So participation is a means to an end. Or it's not just a means to an end, but a legitimate end. And this is the last slide, and we'll close with this. Um, These are the kind of the different 
varying ways in which you can, you can help a community. However, what Brian and Steve are saying in the book is that the first three are illegitimate. The first three are when you're doing something for the community or you're doing something to it. But where Brian and Steve are trying to say is you should come in somewhere along the cooperation or co-learning parts and move to development, which is community-initiated. And so you want to start with doing something with the community and essentially back away to the point where you're just responding to it as things arise. And so there's a much higher success rate amongst those organizations that will come in and work with the locals so that they take ownership and then they leave because they're no longer needed. Um, and I'll close with this story. Uh, there's a story of an organization who went into a community. I forgot where the community is. Let's say Africa because I feel like all the stories coming from Africa. Um, and it was a group of farmers. And so these Americans went into this village, showed them better techniques uh, to produce better results in their farming. The results were outstanding. They did all these things. They even bought this community a tractor. And they used the tractor. They showed the, the, the leaders how to use the tractor to produce better results, a better yield of crop, and essentially helping the community out. Well, everything looked hunky-dory. But when this organization left, and they visited a couple years later just to follow up, see how things went. It had been brought to their attention that the tractor was in the field, rusting away, and hadn't been used since that organization had left. And it's because they were being essentially managerially paternalistic, and that they were just showing and delegated responsibility. And there wasn't that sense of ownership when they left that community. And as a result, a lot of the work that they, in time that they had put into went, you know, unused. And as soon as that organization revisited that village a couple years later, the people came right up to them, oh, it's been so horrible since you left. Will you come back? Will you help us again? You see what happened? They became dependent upon that organization. Even though they were given all the resources, they did not have the leadership in place to to empower themselves, to, to, to take over, and to, to grasp and to implement all the things that they have learned. And so I think that's an important, you know, these are important concepts to helping the poor so that we're not hurting them. And we have to apply these to our ministries here at the church and individually. Cool. All right, let's, let's close in a word of prayer, and then i got to get one over to the other side. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to teach. And I pray, Lord, that these methods and practices would be infiltrated in our church and used in our community, and that you would help us, Father, to love the people that we're providing relief, rehabilitation, and development to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for coming, guys. It's a better turnout than last week, for sure. Um, next week is my last week. And so, next week, uh, like, as I said, we're going to get real practical and turn, talk about some specific ideas of helping. Cool. Thank you. See, I would. I just.